0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we stand before you as uh, a sign of respect that we believe and we um, trust that you are the sovereign of our lives, that not only do you hold the world in your hands, that you hold our world in your hands. We're your kids. And as children in your family, we're all at different levels of growth. Some of us are still babes in the faith, so excited about coming to Jesus and having deep questions answered. Others of us are more in the adolescent, young adult stage, as John described them, young men in the faith. And still others are fathers and mothers, even more mature. But no matter how far we've grown, Lord, next to the Lord Jesus, we see how far we have yet to grow. So, Lord, grow us up, we pray. We pray that as faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by your word, that the truth of the gospel of John would permeate our thinking and thus the way we live our relationships, how we do business, how we worship, how we react to a world around us. These are things, Lord, that we trust you for, that we believe you for. Our faith is a real and vital one. And so we pray that this would be one more installment in growing us up to be like Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please have a seat. I've asked you to turn in the Gospel of John to chapter 16, where we finished that chapter today, and you've heard me say, turn to the Gospel of John now for almost two years. It will be two years next month that we began our study in this Gospel, and uh, I have never been more excited about uh, going through a book like I have going through the Gospel of John inch by inch, paragraph by paragraph, digging deeply, at least as deeply as we can, I honestly, could have gone a lot slower. There's just so much in it. But for the sake of time, uh, we would love to finish this book before the Lord comes back. (laughs) We find ourselves in chapter 16. We're going to begin in verse 29 and go down to verse 33 as we finish this chapter today. So you know, we all fail in life. All of us. Failure is a real experience. It's a real word for us. We fall. Um, we struggle with certain issues. But, but here's the deal. Failure should be an instructor, but never an undertaker. It should never do us in. We fall, but we can get back up. That's the good news. You recall, some of you at least, that there was a commercial some years back. When I say the tagline, more of you are going to remember, I hope that there was a uh, a TV commercial for a medical alert pendant. And the tagline was, I've fallen and I can't get up. Do you remember that? Anybody here? Two people? Okay, thank you for the rest of you engaging. Uh, So the, the commercial showed a woman named Mrs. Fletcher who had fallen in her kitchen. She was an elderly woman. And she presses the medical alarm pendant, dispatcher on the other end answers, and she says, I've fallen and I can't get up. Sorry, that was my imitation. <laughs> the dispatcher assures her that somebody is on the way, that she indeed will get up. You can get up again. That's the whole stint of the commercial. The disciples of Jesus were in for a fall. Their faith would soon be shaken to the core. Doubt would fill their minds. They would fail. But it would not be a permanent falling. It would not be a permanent failure. They would get up again. They could stand strong again. If you think about it, we all started life as failures. The first time you tried to walk, you fell. Oh, you made it a few steps and your parents thought you were the cat's meow. Look, three steps. If you did that now, you'd be considered an utter failure. You fell back down. That's how you started life. The first time you tried to swim, you probably almost drowned. The first time you took a little baseball bat in your hands and swung at a ball, I bet you missed. And I bet that you did not make straight A's on your first report card. If you did, nobody liked you after that point in your life. And I am sure that you, we, all of us, have never maintained a perfect witness for Jesus Christ. We all know what failure is. We all know what falling is. The key, though, is getting up. Let me tell you about a man who failed and got back up and failed and got back up and failed and got back up and failed and finally got back up. He was a businessman and he failed in business in 1831. He was defeated for the legislature in 1832. He was elected to the legislature in 34. His sweetheart died in 1835. He had a nervous breakdown in 36. Was defeated for Speaker of the House in 1838. Defeated for Congress in 1843. Eventually elected to Congress in 46. Again defeated for Congress in 1848 was defeated for the Senate in 1850, was defeated for the Vice Presidency in 1856, and for the Senate in 1858. But this man, Abraham Lincoln, eventually was elected as President. At first he failed and got up and failed and got up and failed and got up. I know that I'm speaking to people who have failed... Somewhere, or with someone, maybe even with the Lord, not only can you get back up, you can have a deep sense of peace in your life and have victory. And that's the thrust of this final paragraph. In verse 29, his disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. And now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them. Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you that in me, you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Let me bring you up to speed in terms of context. This has been the upper room discourse. In chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 of the Gospel of John, one of the longest recorded messages that our Lord gives to his men. It has been in an upper room, part of it has been, that's why it's called the upper room discourse, but not all of it. It was the Passover night and half of what he spoke was in this upper room at the meal. At the end of chapter 14, however, Jesus said, arise, let us go from here. So they all got up and they left. So the chapter 15 and 16 is spoken while they're walking somewhere through Jerusalem down toward the Garden of Gethsemane. Now Jesus has said to them a lot of things, most of which they did not understand at the moment. They interrupted him a few times while he spoke the message, revealing that they didn't understand, but, but now you just read it they assert that they suddenly do understand. We're sure, they say, we know and we believe who you are. As sure as that sounds, Jesus immediately predicts that they're going to fail, they're going to fall, that they're going to be scattered. But ultimately, eventually, they will have his peace and his victory. So what I want to do is go back through this final paragraph with you this morning. That's all that we'll cover is just this paragraph that we read. And I want to give to you, out of the text, three principles, three relational principles. These are principles about human failure and divine restoration. Three relational principles. We're going to look at their bragging, we're going to look at their blundering, and we're going to look at the blessing that Jesus promised. Here's the first principle. Our faith is unreliable. Now, I've written that for you in your worship folder today as well. You have the outline. Our faith is unreliable. Go back to verse 29 and notice the disciples speak. They said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly, and you are using no figure of speech. Now we are sure, literally now we know that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Did you hear that? Now we know, now we believe. That's their assertion. Now we know, now we believe. In this speech so far, our Lord has told them that he is leaving. But the language that he employed when he told them that wasn't always straightforward. It was a little bit cryptic. It was figurative language. And they didn't always understand. Now, I know we've already read some of this, but, but we, we really have to connect a few dots to really understand what the disciples are saying to Jesus. Jesus said he was leaving, but he was speaking figuratively, and they didn't get it. Go back with me to verse 16. Verse 16. Jesus speaks, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me, because I go to the Father. And some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will see me, and again, a little while and you will see uh, not see me, and then see me, and because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says to us a little while? We do not know what he is saying. So, Jesus now explains that to them more plainly. He gives an example of a woman having a baby. She's in pain and sorrow, and then she has a baby, and she's happy. And that's what you guys are going to be like. I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be killed. I'm coming back. You'll see me again. Then notice verse 25. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. Verse 28, I came forth from the Father. That's pretty plain and simple. And I have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. Now that they understood. That they understood. Now the fog is lifting. That's why immediately they say, as we read in verse 29, the disciples said, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. They're going, Oh, okay. Now I get it. Wow, I understand it. Now we know that you know all things, and now we believe. Why did they make so bold a statement? Well, because when they were confused the first time about what Jesus said, now you see me, now you don't, they never said that to Jesus, that they were confused. They only said it to each other. Look at verse 17 more closely. Some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? So picture this. John leaning over to Peter. What did he just say? I don't get it. They're probably whispered to each other in low tones. Jesus was probably far removed in distance. They thought he can't hear us. We're expressing our confusion only to each other. But look at verse 19. Jesus knew that they desired to ask him. And he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while? So he explains it more plainly. So here's the disciples realizing, we didn't tell him, we just told each other. We whispered it to each other, but he knew we did. He knows our secret thoughts. He can read our minds. And now we know that you know all things. If you know that, then you know everything. That's what they're saying. So we know that you know all things, and we believe, they said, we believe. That you came forth from God. That strong assertion of faith is faulty. Here's why. Because their faith isn't as strong as they thought it was. We believe. We know. Immediately Jesus says, actually, you're going to be scattered. You're going to be confused, and you're going to be scattered. Now, on that night, though it's not recorded here, there was some other... Bold assertions of faith. And one came from Peter himself. Peter took Jesus aside this night and he says, Jesus, I just want you to know that even though everybody else might forsake you, like these other disciples, I know they're a bit flaky. But remember, I'm Peter. I'm the rock. You called me that. I'm Rocky. I will not ever stumble because of you. And Jesus said, well, Peter, actually, the truth is, before the morning, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times that you even knew me. And Peter immediately reacted and said, even if I have to die with you, I will not be made to stumble. Great thing to say, they all meant very well, but their faith was very weak and unreliable. And here's why. They say we believe, but what they believe is attached to an unrealistic expectation. What they believed is that Jesus, though he said he's going to go and go die and go to a cross, he has said that to them. They still believe he's going to set up immediately his messianic kingdom. They are not thinking he's going to die, rise from the dead, and leave for 2,000 years. That is not on their radar screen. In fact, after He rises from the dead in Acts 1, they say, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? That's what they anticipate. Let's apply that to ourselves. We say we believe in God. It's a great thing to say. We say we know certain fixed theological truths. It's a great thing to say. But be careful. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I distinctly remember a time in my uh, Christian walk when I thought I had really grown in my faith, that it was strong, that I was up for a real challenge because I have seen God move and provide, and my faith was fixed. I was like immovable. I had no clue how after that point my faith would be shaken to the very core. Of what I believe. I had spoken a bit presumptuously. In Proverbs 16, you know it well, pride, the writer says, goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Or, here's another scenario. We say we believe, but what we believe are things that Jesus never promised. I've met people who say, now that I'm a Christian, I think that everything's just going to go perfectly in my life. I'm never going to be sad. All my bills are going to be paid no matter how much I spend. Uh, The sun is always going to shine and I'm going to have perfect teeth. Because all the evangelists on TV look like they do. And I've had people ask me, have you had your miracle today? And they talk about having a daily miracle. First of all, if it's happening every day, it's probably not a miracle. It's just what happens every day. But my question to these people who are expecting their miracle every day is what if the miracle doesn't happen one day? You take your ball and go home? You will be awfully disappointed and you are believing something he never promised that you'd ever have. I read something I wanted to share with you this morning. not casting any stones at any belief system. This is just an article out of a paper. It's called Religion Watch. And um, this article says... Pentecostals are three times more likely than other Christians to experience major depression, according to a Vanderbilt University study. The overall group, in this case 2,850 North Carolinians over a six-month period, experienced serious depression at the rate of 1.7%, whereas the rate among Pentecostals was 5.4%. Researchers surmise that the higher rate may be partly because people who are already depressed are attracted to Pentecostalism's emphasis on spiritual and physical healing. So when we say we believe, the question is, what exactly do you believe? Do you believe what he said? Do you believe all of the promises he said? Or do you believe just certain select ones and make that say something he never really said? And so that if your expectations aren't met, you will be sorely disappointed and take your ball and go home. So Jesus immediately, look at verse 31, after they make that statement, he answered them, do you now believe? And then predicts their fall. So let's move from the first principle to the second one. And the second one is our failure is understandable. He asked him the question. And then he says in verse 32, indeed, the hour is coming. You could substitute the word indeed for the words in fact. Now you say you believe, you say, you know, do you really? Because in fact, the hour is coming. Yes, has Now come, and I don't know that perhaps Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw in the distance coming across Jerusalem, holding torches, Judas and the Roman soldiers. And he said, the hour is coming. In fact, it has already come that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the father is with me. So, so get the picture for these disciples. It was like the fog was lifting. Finally, that's, that's how they felt. They felt, this has been a very dark and confusing night, but now we understand what you just said and we know that you know all things and we stake our belief in you. The fog is now lifting and Jesus immediately then predicts, well, that's wonderful. However, storm clouds are about to brew over your heads. It's going to cause you to run away. You're going to flee. And that that instinct of self-preservation is going to kick in. So two things are implied here. Number one, you, my disciples, are about to be very confused. And that's implied in the question of verse 31. They say, we believe. Jesus said, do you now believe? Because within hours, they're going to doubt again. And, And once Jesus is put on the cross... And even on resurrection day, when many don't know he is risen from the dead, those doubts will take over. Let's fast forward to Jesus walking on the Emmaus road. This is after the resurrection. There's two disciples walking on that road who don't know that he's risen from the dead. Remember the story? Jesus walks up to them incognito. They don't recognize him. And Jesus comes up and goes, hey, guys, what's happening? I'm paraphrasing. What's happening isn't in the text. And they go, uh, are you like a stranger around here? Don't you know what's been happening? How that Jesus, this one that we believed in, the one that we hoped would redeem Israel, how he died, and it's been three days since he died, and listen to what they said. We had hoped that he would be the one. Did you hear that? That's past tense. Not we were hoping that any moment he's going to rise from the dead. No, it was over for them. Their hope was dead. When he died, their hope died. When that tomb was sealed, their hopes were gone. We had hoped he would be the one. We believe. Do you believe? Do you really believe? In a few hours, they would be utterly confused. I know know that I'm speaking this morning to some very confused disciples of Jesus Christ. At one time... Everything was clear. You had a handle. You knew theology and you knew the truth and it was laid out and you could go to bed every night. I know this. But something happened along the way. Let me put it the way one author puts it. He says, there's a window in our hearts through which we view God. And at one time, the window was very clear and God was very crisp in our view. But he said, something happened. A pebble struck the window, and it shattered. A pebble of pain. And now everything is seen through that fractured lens. It's not as clear anymore. Some of you were in that kind of a storm. You believed so clearly. You could see so crisply. Not so much today. May I just say, please hold fast. Hold on, dear Christian. When you weather those kind of storms, that kind of faith-shaking endeavor or storm, when you come out the other end, and you, after a period of evaluation, what do I really believe? Who really am I? It's clearer at the other end. It's better. You're settled. When you go through enough stuff and you see God's promises and you push away the false expectations, you see, just like today, it rained last night. And it's clear in Albuquerque, but after a rain, it's really clear, right? That's what it's like after one of these trials. The second thing Jesus predicts is that they're going to be scattered. Look at it. Indeed, the hour is coming. Now is come when you will be scattered. Scorpizo means to run away like scared little sheep, dispersed in all directions. You're going to hightail it. You're going to think only about yourselves. That's the idea here. Now, right now, they're together, all the disciples in this wonderful fraternal fellowship. But as soon as those soldiers come and they arrest Jesus and they're looking around at who else to get, they'll just all run away in different directions. And they will be fulfilling a scripture, actually, from the prophet Zechariah. And both Matthew and Mark will speak to that in their accounts. When the disciples scattered, this is to fulfill what was written by Zechariah, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And these disciples will be scattered. Another word I want to draw your attention to in verse 32. Look at the word alone. Jesus said, and you will leave me alone." Now I want you to compare that to what they said. We know, you know, everything, and we now believe that you came from God. And Jesus said, you're going to leave me alone. See the weight of those two statements posed to one another? You're going to leave me alone. When they scatter in all directions and leave Jesus alone, they're going to leave Jesus to his enemies. What then of their love for him? What then of their belief in him? What then of their commitment and knowledge of him? Where is it? Now, I'm sure that Jesus didn't castigate them like I just castigated them. I think that Jesus' tone was probably, though I can't prove it, was probably very compassionate when he said, in fact, you're all going to be scattered. I'm sure his heart was breaking. As he knew what failure that they would experience coming up. Here's the point. Jesus knew they would fail him. Now here they say, we know that you know everything. And Jesus said, you're right, I know everything. I am omniscient. In fact, I know so much and what I really know is your faith is weak and you're going to run away. That's what I know. But then he goes on to predict their recovery and their their peace. Something that needs to be said before I move on to the last and final point. Whatever you do when you're in a trial, do not run away from the company of God's people. These guys who were together ran away. They ran away in all different directions apart from each other. Never in a trial or a temptation run away from God's people. I, I speak to people who will say, yeah, I haven't been in church like for two years. And it's because I've been going through some deep and dark and hard trials. And, and, I, and I go, I, I, it's, hard, it's unbelievable to me. Because when I go through a deep and dark and hard trials, I need to run to God's people, not away from them. You know, a soldier in a fierce battle, if he goes out on his own, goes AWOL, runs away, he's either killed or captured. He's not safe. You need other soldiers. And so run to the company of other believers. Run to those who can help hold your faith up at that time. Let's look at verse 33 and we'll close this off. And here's the third principle. Our future is unmistakable. Now we come to the blessing part. After the bragging, after the blundering comes the blessing. Jesus said, These things... I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I love that verse. It's one of my favorite verses. I know you hear that a lot. I have a lot of favorite verses. This is one of them. This is Jesus wrapping up the entire upper room discourse. This is the final cap. This is the final word. After all that he has said in four chapters, he leaves them with this. After predicting their failure, he now bathes them in a promise. That their faith is well said, but boasting in something that's really not there. In fact, you're going to fail and you're going to leave me alone, but I'm telling you all this because you can be peaceful. And you can have victory in me. I've overcome the world. Now, when Jesus says these things, I have, what is he talking about? What things? Actually, I think he means all that he has spoken that entire night in this upper room discourse. So now's the time to go over them briefly before we close. One of the things Jesus said in chapter 13 is how much he loved them. And he showed them by washing their smelly feet that night. He got down and started washing their feet. And that was a metaphor of of his servant's heart for them. And he said, I've done this for you. You ought to do that for one another. That's one of the things. Another thing in chapter 14 is he told them about heaven. He called it my father's house. He said, I've come from there. I'm going to there. And it's there that I'm preparing a place for you. Told them about heaven. He then told them, one of the other things is that uh, all the works that I've done, I'm about to leave. But greater works than I've done, you're going to do. And then he told them about the Holy Spirit who was going to be inside of them to enable that to happen. And the Holy Spirit would be moving powerfully through them. And the Spirit of God would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment because of them. Finally, he told them how to talk to God. You've come to me, and every time you had a problem, you, you talked to me, but now you can go directly to the Father in my name. All of that are these things that Jesus has spoken to them. So, So the bottom line then, here's what we get to at the bottom line despite all of the hostility and persecution and tribulation that is in the world that they're about to walk out into and all of the confusion that's on their minds at the present and will come in the near future, they can still have a sense of peace and eventually be victors over it. Now listen, a lot of people think that peace is the absence of conflict. If You ask people, define peace. They would say it's, it's the absence of conflict. Because in their minds, they say, I just need a little peace. You know, I mean, get the dogs out of here. Get the kids out of here. Don't let anybody call me. I need peace, man. I need space. That's an inadequate definition of peace. It is not the absence of conflict. Here's a better definition. Peace is the presence of God, even in the midst of conflict. In the world, you will have tribulation. But cheer up, boys. I've overcome the world. I've spoken these things to you that you might have peace, peace." I love that. There's a painting in a museum. It's labeled peace. When you look at it, you wonder, where's the peace? It's a storm setting. It's an ocean with waves bouncing up high. Lightning is in the entire scene. The waves are crashing on the rocky shores. Spray is everywhere. It's a violent scene. And it's called peace. You have to look closely to understand because halfway up the cliff in a little hole in the rock is a bird, a mother bird with her baby birds all sleeping in the nest. They're sleeping. She's watching. It's called peace. The reason they're sleeping is because she's there. It's her presence that brings them peace. They don't care what's going on around them, but right there with them in the nest is mom. In this world you will have tribulation. Philipsis is the Greek word. It means to be squeezed, pressured, distressed. But he says, I've overcome the world. I've conquered the world. Notice how he puts it. He speaks of it in a past tense. Isn't that interesting? Because it really hasn't yet been accomplished. He's going to go to the cross and conquer the world by conquering people's sin and bringing peace spiritually. He will one day conquer the world physically by His second coming. That's still some time off. But He speaks of it as though it's already done. I've I've overcome the world. I've conquered the world. In other words, I guarantee it. It's as good as done, is what He's saying to them. And He says, be of good cheer. I've overcome Satan and the world. Now, the world, Satan uses the world to overcome you. Jesus said, I've overcome the world. I know you're thinking, well, uh, if that's true, then uh, how come I'm still getting attacked? If Satan and the world are still conquered, why do I still feel this way and go through these things? Let me give you the answer. Have you ever seen a mortally wounded animal? Just before it finally dies, it goes after... Something around it. I have a friend of mine who's a hunter, loves it. And he's hunted bear before. He to- told me a story that he uh, he fired a shot at a bear, at pretty close range, got it right in the heart. The bear kept coming at him, shot it again in the heart. Bear kept coming at him, shot it a third time, about two feet before him, the bear fell down. I think I would have fallen down at that point. I would have lost it. That's the death throes of a mortally wounded animal. All that is happening around you in the world, all of the hassles you get, those are the death throes of a defeated enemy. Jesus said, I've overcome the world. I want to close with this thought. How do we live overcoming lives in a world that gives us tribulation? Because because you only have one of two choices. Either you're going to be a victim or the victor. You're either going to be overcome by the world or you overcome the world. Those are your choices. So how do you overcome the world? Well, there's two ways Christians have done this, and the first way I find inadequate. I'll call that compensation. Compensation. Compensation is where the Christian says the world is really bad and gnarly and filled with bad things and tribulation, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to compensate, but I'm just going to clench my fist and grip my teeth and think heaven is in the end. And I'll just make it through because there's heaven. And, you know, maybe I'll die soon and I'll just go to heaven. Okay, if you want to live that way, have at it. It's inadequate in my view. That's compensation. A better way is transformation. Transformation is to find that even in the midst of the tribulation itself, your roots can go deep in the ground and find refreshment even in the fire. In the world, you will have tribulation. In me, he says, same verse, you will have peace. You see those two phrases? In the world, in me. In the world, in me. These disciples would have all of this tribulation of the world happening around them Jesus is promising that none of it has to happen inside of them because they are in Christ while in the world. And when you're in Christ, you're in the one who has conquered all and gives refreshment now. There's a psalm. It might be Psalm 84. I just don't have it at the tip of my mind, but I think it's Psalm 84. David is describing people going up to pilgrimage in Jerusalem for the festivals. And he says something interesting. He says, as as the pilgrims are walking up toward Jerusalem, when they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. I've always wondered at that verse. Baca means dry, barren. And around Jerusalem, before you get there, you, you go through some pretty hot, dry desert. No water. He doesn't say who in going through the valley of Bacow find a spring, he says, they make that dry place a spring. That's transformation. That's transformation. I'm in Christ and the Lord is with me in the midst of the fire. That's a better way. I close with this. I know I said I close a couple of times, but you know, uh, Paul the Apostle would often say, finally, my brethren, and then keep writing. So I, I have scriptural precedent. In 1832, there was a severe drought and a famine in uh, South Dakota. Locusts had come in and stripped the crops bare. It had not rained for a long time. Temperature soared over 100 degrees for weeks. The people were economically depressed. In South Dakota is a little town called Wall, South Dakota. On a good day, there's about 800 people that live there in Wall, South Dakota. I've been there. What's interesting about the town is there's a drugstore called Wall Drug. It's been there for years. And back in the 1930s, Ted and Dorothy Husted, who owned it then, were believers in Christ. They knew the times were economically depressed. And they thought, how can we get people to our drugstore? And so they thought of something ingenious. They they made road signs and went out 25 miles in each direction and put up a sign that said, 25 miles ahead, wall drug, free water. Now, druggists have been giving out free water for generations. It was not any big thing. But nobody advertised it. They advertised it. 25 miles, free water, free ice water. So people looked at the sign and said, that's kind of weird, let's go find out what that's about. So more people showed up. So they thought, well, this is cool. Let's put up more signs. So 10 miles out, 5 miles out. You put up signs like, hold on, just 5 more miles, free water, wall drugstore, wall South Dakota. So people just thought, okay, I've got to check this place out. Well, they got so carried away and so crazy with the signs, they put a sign in Albany, New York. Wall drugstore, 1,250 miles, something like that. 1,725 miles, that's the, that's the mileage. Kid you not. I kid you not, I saw a sign in Paris, France that said, Wall Drugs. I'm like, 12,000 miles, you know, that direction. (laughs) Crazy. But here's what happens. Today, in that town of 800, 15,000 people a day come to Wall Drug. It's enormous. Ted and Dorothy Husted live by a motto. Here it is. Pain is inevitable. Misery is optional. In the world you'll have tribulation. Pain is inevitable. But you can have peace. Misery is optional. Are you in Christ? Make sure you're in Christ. Some of you are in church who are not in Christ. Some of you are in a denomination. I grew up this way. You are not in Christ. Some of you are in a theological belief system who are not in Christ. Make sure you're in Christ. Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All that we need is found in Him. He is the fountainhead of every blessing, of every good thing, And that's why Paul said, I've shunned my own righteousness that I might be found in Christ, in him. So, Lord, I pray that your people, as we bring this chapter to a close, all of those who have gathered would evaluate their lives and make sure that they're in Christ. And then we would all further evaluate, if we're going through a confusing time, During this storm, what it is we really believe, what it is you've really said, what it is you've really promised, to come out the other end stronger and clearer. Please, Father, strengthen the hands and lives of your flock. It's for Christ's sake we pray. Amen.